When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just like that, the final hour is here for Hot Mike with Hutton and Withrow on this Thursday edition across the Outkick Network. Glad you're with us. Uh, if you're listening to this great radio partner or streaming live at YouTube just by searching out Outkick. You can watch all the great shows uh, across the Outkick Network there, live or on demand, including uh, clips along the way. Chad, uh, we have Ramon Diaz Jr. coming up in 20 minutes. He's a former football player at Northwestern who has come out and put his name behind the culture and the, the hazing, which he says he was, a, he was hazed. Uh, and he will detail that uh, with what he says are exactly how things were when he was with the program in 2005 to 2008 to where we are now with the story that Pat Fitzgerald has been fired. University trying to fire him with cause. And the legal entanglements will uh, will certainly begin, and lawyers will make a ton of money off of this. A lot of questions to to ask uh, Ramon Diaz about, and we'll dive into that coming up in twenty minutes. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, respect to Ramon because he is the one person who's put his name on on this report. Yeah. There's a lot of anonymous stories being told, and people speaking anonymously to the student newspaper at Northwestern to other publications. But to our knowledge, Ramon Diaz Jr. is the only one to put his name behind his allegations. So a lot of questions to get to with him, for sure. A lot of people chiming in with questions they want us to ask him also. And I'm happy to get that feedback. And uh, I'm, I'm asking some of them already that have been, uh, have been sent to us. So it's going to be a good, good conversation um, about early Pat Fitzgerald-era Northwestern football, which he was there 05 to 08. So he was there for the previous coach. Fitzgerald takes over in 06 and had three years playing for Pat Fitzgerald. Uh, Ramon Diaz Jr. joins us uh, in, in 18 minutes. I, Chad, the, there's discussion um, about the NCAA tournament expansion. And I, this is going to happen. I'm not a fan of it. I, I don't know where you come down on this, but currently it's 68. They expanded in 2001 to 64 teams, I believe. Or no, it was 65. 65, there was one play-in game, then they moved it yeah. to 68 with yeah. the first four. And then that happened in 2011. Yes. And if you're just going based on the years, they're due to expand the tournament. It's not happening based on the, the, the committee that's looked into this. But they are, the, the men's basketball committee, they're considering many options for the future. Uh, Greg Sankey is a part of this discussion. This is, they're going to expand this. I, I just hope they keep it at a number that allows us to see what we have seen in recent years with this tournament. And the fact that with the transfer portal the way it is now, Chad, it, it, it's compelling. It allows the, the Cinderella's are more likely to be competitive based on a, a sixth man at Georgia that transfers to Western Kentucky 
than they, they have been based on the way the rules are set up now. And I think it waters it down back to the way it was where there was just no chance that a 16 seed was going to win. You weren't going to see a 15 seed or a 14 seed uh, produce a compelling matchup. You would not see Florida Atlantic go all the way to the Final Four. We're seeing that now, and it's more expected that the first and second rounds of this tournament are going to be great. And I just don't think the first or second rounds of the tournament on an expanded uh, tournament that includes, what, 128 teams, just to get to that 25% threshold, that's not great. It's a money grab, and they'll make a ton of it. But it's not great for the compelling sports fan where I want to sit down on that Thursday, Friday, and just binge what end up being some great moments of the year. Well, and also, we are coming off this past NCAA tournament where the first and second rounds experienced the best ratings in the history of the sport yeah. for first and second round. So this does fall in line with a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mantra. Uh, this is a tournament. Y we can point to things in college basketball that may be broken with some of the regular season stuff and things that can be improved. But it's difficult to argue with the NCAA tournament the way it is right now as the greatest single annual sporting event in America. I mean, from top to bottom, start to finish, the month-long tournament, single elimination, I, I think is the best single sporting event tournament every single year that we see uh, across all sports. So I'm with you, Hutton. I don't want to see that system change. I also... I will hear the arguments about if you're going to expand so many Division I teams and have more teams come into different leagues annually, well, if you're going to add you know, 75 teams to Division I, then you should probably consider adding to the tournament field also with more teams eligible for the tournament. I get that. I'm just looking at this from a very um, micro sense. And uh, we can get into the macro of the sport, all mm -hmm. right? But micro sense, that month is damn entertaining. It's great. And I do not want great. that bleeped with anytime soon. And if you get to 96 or whatever it is, we've got teams hosting other teams on their home. And then it just feels by the time you get, even if you got to the through the preliminaries and got to that Thursday, Friday with 68, it already feels more watered down. Yes, but those, those week, you know, the championship, the tournament weeks, the, the conference tournaments, and then the start of the NCAA tournament, it's a damn national holiday, that Thursday and Friday of the tournament. Like, I don't know why you'd want to mess with the specificity of that tournament with 68, first four, whatever. They added that. It doesn't really make a big difference. Mention the expansion to 65, then 68. But don't mess with that Thursday and Friday. Those are two of the best days of the sports calendar every single well, year. And I really don't want those messed with. If they wanted to do some preliminary thing where you got whatever, I just I think that you risk watering it down. That by the time you get to the the, the sixty eight, if you've already played sixteen twenty tournament games, and they've been at home courts or whatever, I think you risk watering the whole product. This down. is the NCAA's moneymaker. Yeah, you know, a billion a year plus off this tournament. Uh, no, uh, uh, in 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 profit, and the vast majority is off this tournament, but. If the if you believe if you're the NCAA and you believe well you've already you're not in control of the college football playoff. If you believe that we're going to see the power conferences branch off and become their own entity at some point and govern themselves, 
the one thing you latch on to now and what you have to be discussing is how do we make sure that we keep the tournament the way it is on what we have control over. And if we're losing out on some college football aspects of a governing body, can we gain more control in the path that we're great in, which is that tournament? So I, not everyone's for it. CBS Sports did a poll last year. It was a, they polled all of the uh, 100 Division I head coaches. 97% of the feedback was they are wanting the tournament the way it is to remain the way it is. That's interesting. That because, says a lot. And But it's also... Because it, you would think that the coaches that aren't getting in as much with their it. programs, yeah, they want it expanded for that, that reason, so they can get in. But now 97%, 97% that is an overwhelming majority. Yeah, and I, I'm stunned by that because I, you, you pull 100 coaches, you're going to have the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. And the have-nots are going to say, yeah, we want part of the pie and part of the payout uh, across uh, college basketball. Payout for the Washington Commanders is a reported $6 billion to Daniel Snyder. Uh, there is a report through the Washington Post. They have this entire sale or potential sale totally covered. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you guess that Snyder's, well, he's messing things up again. Issues in the legal negotiations between the NFL and representatives for Daniel Snyder threatened to complicate the approval and closing of Snyder's $6 billion sale of the franchise to Josh Harris and his ownership group. And this stems from talks that they're having. They're, as early as next Thursday, they would, the, the owners are hopeful or have been hoping that they can ratify this sale and it's approved and it's done. But Chad, the, uh, a person, uh, a source with the Post says, uh, they describe the complication as significant and not just some small stag because according to this source, the complications are related to, at least in part, legal issues pertaining to the leaking of emails that led to the resignation mm. of John Gruden as head coach of the Raiders. And now owners are apparently like not nearly as optimistic based on the way this has gone between the league and Snyder because I don't think Harris wants to take on any of those legal issues through the franchise and inherit those. And I think Snyder's trying to leave it behind in the negotiations. Can nothing be easy with Daniel Snyder? Nothing. I mean, nothing, nothing is simple. Even collecting $6 billion by selling the team cannot be easy with Daniel Snyder. And now the whole John Gruden thing, coming back up, a story we talked about yesterday, it, it is crazy because all everyone wants is for this to be done, for competent ownership to be in Washington with that franchise. It's what Josh Harris wants who's trying to buy the team. It's what the league wants. It's what commanders fans want is for this team to be out of his hands and Daniel Snyder just can't make it easy anything involving him can't go smooth just won't happen and this was back in May we were hearing that this this deal was 95 percent done well here's the five percent yep and of course Snyder's behind it Chad uh, Roy McElroy saying no chance that he would ever play for the live tour uh, for live golf saying he would just rather retire just Quit the game. If it was the last golf league on earth, he would retire. He would step away from the game. He goes, I'm told, I would be totally fine just playing the majors, and, and that's it. I'd be totally comfortable stepping away from the game. Uh, based on a report, and the, the report is sourcing the one of the documents that was released through the, the United States Senate hearings that are taking place between and looking into 
the contract that's been agreed to between uh, the PGA Tour and Live Golf about the pitch to Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods of being team owners within Live Golf. PGA Tour at the time, this was back in April, came back almost immediately and said, no, no go. They're, they're not going to be team owners. We're not negotiating that aspect of it. But Rory at the Scottish Open following his first round said he would rather retire if this was the last golf league on earth. Uh, but you say the key details here are the, the wording of this, live golf. He wouldn't play for live golf. But they're uh, a part of this agreement, correct me if I'm wrong, is Live Golf is in charge of like coming up with this new entity which, for which they don't have a name for it yet. And the PGA Tour and Live Golf would be a part of that with its players. Yeah, you're only not working for Live Golf by title because you're still on the PGA Tour, but Live right. Golf has a hand now in the PGA Tour and is a part owner in it. So I love that you're standing firm on your principles, Rory. All that sounds really cool and great, and I applaud you for it. But you're already working for Live, so it doesn't really mean a hill of beans because you're already one of their employees. I want further details you were under on, their the, thumb. on the meeting that took place last November, and then he, uh, Rory's saying he met with the the governor. Yeah, of and he the didn't he didn't hide. He said, I, "I saw him fund. late last year. I've I played with him at a pro am event, also." And he said he first first met him at an F1 race. Yeah, he said that he's very influential and he's always been around the golf world. He said we know a lot of the same people, um, so. I didn't hear a lot of personal issues with Al Ramayan, right? The way he was describing that. Yeah, yeah. But obviously he has issues with where this money comes from. So, and the, the Saudi government, I, I just, I hear Rory say that. And I, I would, I would love it if someone actually went through with this and said, Hey, after this happened, I'm retiring from golf. I'm not playing again. It hasn't happened yet. And Rory threatening it sounds great, but he's already pretty much with live. So it doesn't mean much. Everyone is now. Yeah. And he's never going to be on the Live Tour because what Live wants is the PGA name. They want to run PGA. They don't want to run Live forever. They created Live to get right. the foot in the door because actually to barrel through the door because the door would not be cracked open by PGA. They wanted nothing to do with them. So they forced their hand by creating Live. So now they want PGA. And they're probably not going to stop until they're the controlling owners of the PGA Tour. And a part of this was they, they would also have to appear in 10 live events yeah. as part of uh, being gifted the, the ownership of teams. And uh, yeah, they, they would try to have this massive superstar uh, top golf players in the world tournament, um, a global event, which the PGA Tour has said they, they're going to attack the sport globally. Yep. This will certainly do that uh, on the PGA Tour schedule. Um, we're seeing the, the sovereign wealth funds investment in sports. Uh, we've detailed it in F1. They're tennis now. Soccer. Of course, golf. Soccer. Um, and in some cases, you can find it in many leagues. For instance, the, the Washington Wizards, reading up, they, uh, and the Capitals, I believe, they have a percentage. The sovereign wealth fund has invested a percentage to get like a 5% stake in those franchises, for instance. Now, they don't have controlling ownership. And that's what Adam Silver was recently discussing for the NBA as commissioner, uh, where he said there's no pathway in the foreseeable future for sovereign wealth funds to become the controlling owners of an NBA franchise. And 
the wording here is also important because he didn't say ever. He just said for the foreseeable future. I don't want to say that could ever happen, but there's no contemplation right now. I mean, it's very important to us putting aside sovereign wealth funds that individuals are in a position to control our teams, be responsible to the fans, be responsible to the partners and to the players. And it's very important to us that there would be a person in charge. And this is independent of sovereign wealth funds. So he's pointing to the controlling owner having a face and a singular voice. But there are plenty of ownership teams where you have the, the front man for the, for the rock band that is the billionaire and then a bunch of millionaires with you. And in this case, it's not that hard to foresee an NBA franchise that would have that person that would be put in place by the sovereign wealth. Yeah, fund. the new Seattle Supersonics, when they're an expansion team, could have their Mick Jagger up front and their Keith Richards in the back. And Keith Richards could be the private investment fund. That, that's possibly a scenario that will take place. Also consider this, like in Major League Baseball, they want expansion. Got to find those billionaires. Yep. Not everyone's looking to jump in. Ramon Diaz Jr., former Northwestern player, joins us next. Glad you're with us for Hot Mike with Hutton and Withrow here across the Outkick Network. And the story that has dominated the week, and going into the last weekend too, Chad, uh, Northwestern, the hazing allegations and the hazing culture. That the two-week suspension initially that three days was later a became, yeah. a, became a firing, a firing of Pat Fitzgerald. Of Mr. Northwestern Wildcat, Pat Fitzgerald. Six-month-long investigation, 50-plus people interviewed by the investigator. A lot of news coming out of this one story at Northwestern. Yeah, and, and plenty of questions that we've been uh, going back and forth with all week. And we're pleased to be joined by former Northwestern offensive lineman Ramon Diaz Jr., who played at Northwestern from uh was it 2005 or 2004 ramon when you started oh five to oh nine oh five to oh nine so the uh and by the way thank you for joining us why why is right now the time for you to put your name and face and voice behind what has been a a culture at northwestern that you describe as uh, systematically toxic but you also say that you loved your time at Northwestern and you love being a Wildcat. Sure. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, really appreciate just allowing you all to reserve some space for me to be able to share my story. I do appreciate it. Um, yeah, I think that question has been posed to me by several different reporters and I think it's an important one. Uh, I think that, um, you know, I think that's been kind of the critique, I guess, at this point is, you know, why wait till right now? You could have said anything. You could have you could have said things before. You know, this has been so long. And I think to be fair, for me, I do have quite a bit of language around what has happened now just because of um, now being a clinical therapist and I'm working on a PhD in neuropsychology. One of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing today is because of all the things that I had to endure leaving the program 
And I also had just to work through some really, really difficult psychological uh, issues that I had no idea that I was suffering. And, and so now, you know, as I've spent a lot of time reflecting, I, what I, what I remind reporters now is that the, the difficulty of trying to explain something um, when you're in a, when you're in a place that's systemically, an environment systemically driven by uh, oppressing any kind of narrative or dissenting opinion, um, especially for a person of color, it, unless you're, you've been within, you've been in an environment like that. I, I work with patients that deal with this kind of oppression often and now, and, and, and I know that it's, it often doesn't come the narrative or the sharing of the trauma experience until years later, sometimes if it ever comes out. And so people can either believe that or not. I mean, I'm not here to prove a case. Um, and I felt very, very much motivated to share um, to, to also defend those two whistleblowers that first initially came out um, in the on Friday, and then I felt compelled after the alleged letter that was written by the by in all caps um, the alleged Northwestern football team. Which, when especially, I felt like somebody was speaking on my behalf, and I did not feel that way. And I felt now I have the training, the skills, and also the ability to speak against that and i and i felt like i needed to um share my name as well to because i have nothing to hide so it's not like there's no facts that people can look at and undermine once i share my my story and i know you confirmed a lot of the hazing allegations saying that was going on in your time there and also talked about a racist climate within the program with some of the things said to you uh, if you would, Ramon, can you give a, a couple of specific examples? I know you've laid this out that I've seen in print to reporters, but one thing that that happened to you where you would say this was uh, an example of a racist atmosphere within the program, and also one specific example of either what you endured or what you saw from a hazing standpoint during your time in, in Evanston. Sure. Um, I can answer two specific situations. What one of the reasons that I do want to make make it a point that you know the the what I had what I also what I endured as well as watching one of my very today who's one of the one of the players that came out he still remains anonymous I have encouraged him since Friday to to share his name and I'll let him decide to do that um, we've been talking about what happened in that position room since we both graduated uh, up until this point and in various contexts, personally behind closed doors. Um, and so we both never thought we'd ever have the opportunity to share what was actually, what actually occurred to both of us. And he's, he's reported this in a WGN uh, interview as well. So you can probably find that online at this point. And so for me, it was, um, you know, as a redshirt freshman to be put in a room with the rest of the team and then to have your uh, head shaved in front of everybody in front of all the players I'm, i want to be clear about that this is the players i don't i do not believe any of the coaches were involved with it for the, the shaving of my head and to have cinco de mayo um shaved on the back of my head and then having to have that uh shaved in my head for several days and then we were able to shave it off afterwards we had to walk around like that and so 
the first point I'll make is that you could have shaved anything in my head. Not that I condone the behavior, but you could have shaved anything. And why that? Why would why did people believe that that would be funny? Um, my parents came here. I'm the only natural born citizen of my family. Uh, my parents, neither of them could speak English. Uh, they came here. Um, and it's, it was a very painful experience, which I don't feel uh, obliged at all to disclose what they went through. Um, but they, you know, they came here out of fear uh, in the 80s. And um, and for me to to have that put on my head, it, I, I still to this day, my parents still don't know what had happened. My mother actually messaged me Saturday night and said, I saw you in the news, what happened? And even to this day, um, because there's so many things that she's not aware of, I could, I won't tell her because um, she, I don't know what would, she would be appalled and she would be so, so hurt by, by what some one person could do to another person just purely on their, in their race. And the second, the second thing that happened was to my black teammate, who's very close friend of mine. Um, we were the only two people of color on, in this offensive line group uh, during the years. And there was one, one player, but he was a little older and he ended up graduating soon after I arrived. So I didn't really know him that well. But him and I, the, the black teammates my age, um, you know, there were very specific comments that were made by the position uh, coach, who was a white position coach. Um, and then there was a second coach that would often be in the room that was when the comment was made. But there would be several comments around what he wore. Um, one specific comment that still stands out to me is the way my teammate dressed is not doesn't fit the norms of this in this very oppressive environment so he would often say you know <clears throat> we're not in the hood anymore please you know stop wearing that stuff and again i'm not quoting him specifically but just paraphrasing of course and then there would be other things like they would mimic the way he walks almost to like a almost imitating like a monkey um and it, unless you're there and you saw it it really and to feel like I only could look at him and we, neither of us laughed, you know, but to know, like, if we say anything, um, it could probably, I don't think we would get injured, but it would be more of, we would be laughed at and it, we would be gaslit. I mean, I have a language again around this now, but a lot of gaslighting, a lot of psychological intimidation, and then to have the person who you're supposed to respect and um, play for because I was a highly recruited athlete coming out of high school to play with play for somebody who was doing this to me and a very good friend of mine. Uh, I had never been under that kind of environment. Um, there was a specific comment that was made by another white offensive lineman in a different setting where we were on a practice field and jokes, jokes, jokes were being made at some point. He looks over to my black teammate and say, Hey, do that monkey, you know, dance that you, that you know how to do. And again, why reference that? Why reference a monkey? I never thought in the 21st century I would be at a prestigious university like Northwestern. Um, I chose this school among many. I had a lot of choices to, to choose from, to play at, and to have to hear that about a, one of my best, I would say my best friend. Um, you know, there's a reason why we're still talking about it today behind closed doors. Ron Diaz Jr., former Northwestern offensive lineman with us on Hot Mike with Hutton and Withrow. Was this just an offensive lineman room thing, or was it further throughout the locker room? Um, 
are you referring to just the racist comments or the environment that, and the hazing or the and the hazing as well that it, every uh, again i'm just re, i'm hearing what you're saying it every story is the offensive line room uh with the position group that you were playing with I, i'm i'm curious how obvious it was versus something that people would just assume was average uh run-of-the-mill hazing versus what's been reported which is you know, very sexual in nature based on what has been out there this week. Yeah. So I, I do, I, I do confirm the car wash that, that did happen. Um, you know, I've never, I've never been around a situation like that where I've had to you know, come alongside uh, other men nude and rub up against them where their genitals are out. My genitals are out. Um, I, I've never, I've never had to experience anything that having three children of my own now, um, if I found out that my son had to go through something like that, uh, the school would not want to hear from me because it's not going to be good. Um, as a, as a, obviously as a neuropsychologist in training, like I wouldn't leave the school. And so I got, I, I had the coach in the office, um, the AD superintendent and, and I would demand accountability. And that would just be as a parent now in hindsight. So I couldn't even begin to imagine if parents knew what was ha were happening. And uh, so that's one. The other the other point uh, was uh, that I made in reporting is um, there. Again, it was always under the guise of, of team bonding. I think and that's what I'm sure that's many who defend the athletic program would say that. Um, but I saw many, many upperclassmen urinate on uh, up, lower classmen. Um, I've never seen anything like that. I've never been, I mean, we're not perfect as athletes. You know, I'm not suggesting that I've never made mistakes and not saying that, but you know, we all kind of crack jokes and I think it's, that's part of the sport experience that we've all had, most of us, but to see that and happen, you know, to, to see that me witness that, I think is something as a 19 year old, a 20 year old, and now as a therapist, like there's a reason why people don't speak up. Um, when you're in that kind of environment and it seems like it's being condoned by everybody in the shower and no one is saying anything. Um, I, I just wanted to play football as I tell reporters. I, I had, I was so excited to play for such a, a great academic institution. Um, being the first, you know, person in my family have a college degree and, and to be able to make my family proud. And that was the only goal of me going to college was to one day hopefully help provide financially for my family um, and to have to endure those kind of things. Uh, and I think the other point that answers question specifically, I know that there's one time I was walking out to practice and I had a, another black teammate from a different position group say, um, and I'm, I'm censoring here just for the sake of the report, and, you know, obviously we're live and your viewers probably don't want to hear me share the exact wording, but, um, you know, basically he said, I don't know why you know, he treats you so bad, but he used different choice words. And he was referring to my position coach. And so there is evidence to suggest that other people could see it pretty clearly. Um, and uh, I know that there was other things that my black teammate had to endure at, at parties where he would, he would attend parties with these offensive linemen I refused to go any parties with them. Um, I didn't attend any any parties where any of my team white teammates were, 
because that's how I felt, how marginalized and how alienated I felt. Um, I've mentioned this to reporters as well, that the last two years that I was there, um, just like in high school, many, many players, they get together before games, usually have like a, like a film night or, you know, and so Northwestern would have the quarterback and the lineman get together for kind of a steak dinner or something. And I never attended any of those my last two years. Um, that's how uncomfortable I felt around them. And the quarterback would always be there. So no one cared to call me. No one cared to ask where I was. Um, I think everyone knew I didn't have to be, I didn't have to explain myself, but I also didn't feel like I needed to explain myself. I, and, uh, and so I, I think that was, that was the way I exited was not feeling like I was really participating at all. I just was there just to eventually just to graduate. Ramon Diaz has been our guest, former Northwestern offensive lineman. We've got a break here and, uh, I, Hopefully, as more details emerge, we can continue the conversation as, as well. Hopefully, you'll be able to join us again, Ramon, and we can dive deeper on some of this. Well, thanks for coming on and telling your story to yeah. us, Ramon. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. It's Ramon Diaz. We'll give thoughts on what we heard. Lots unpacked. No doubt. We'll do that next here on Hot Mike. Six, the Peabody location with Eha Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Our thanks to all the guests uh, that joined us throughout the show today. Ramon Diaz Jr., former Northwestern offensive lineman in the previous segment. If you missed portion of that, you can check it out on YouTube on demand. Uh, Lots to unpack here. There, there are, and we, we certainly need more time. We'll get him back on because yeah. there's follow-ups to things. Um, well, the one follow-up I want to get to that, that could have had a, a, a quick answer was Randy Walker, who tragically died of a heart attack, was the guy he went to play for, right? He committed right. to Randy Walker at Northwestern. He had him there for a year. He started as a redshirt freshman. Right, you know, and he's, he referenced he's playing. That. So, like, what was this systemic under Randy Walker's program that Pat Fitzgerald inherited and it continued, or did it start anew with Pat Fitzgerald? I wanted to ask well, that question. When he was to discussing what the, the head shaving story. He mentioned that was his redshirt freshman year. Yeah, that would have been 2005. And Hunt, you brought up a great question based on the head shaving. Incident. Well, because he 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 stressed. He's like, and I want to be clear: it's the players in that room, not coaches. He, he he said there was not a coach present. But if you if you've got that again, we, we need to chat further. If he's if you have that shaving in your head, and you you're walking around with it for three or four days. Coaches are going to see that, right? Yeah. Even I, as a redshirt, I'm hard pressed to believe that not one coach, unless on he staff just wears a hat everywhere, but, would see but still, that and not say, "Yeah, let's shave the rest of that off." Come on, guys, this is yeah. stupid. It's uh that the hazing that I read about that he's referencing there. I mean, there, there's hazing uh, for fraternity initiation. Yeah, there's hazing by everywhere. Pledge, but it's not. I never went through anything close to something like that. Never yeah, saw it's it. not this, you know, homoerotic with no. the stuff that's going on. Right. Like th this is this is sexual assault. I mean, when you're talking about forcing someone to rub genitals with someone or rub them on them with a the car wash he, he described and everything else is crazy. Royce in our YouTube chat says this kid is a prime example of the problem in the United States. Can't stand listening to sensitive dudes that couldn't stand a middle school locker room in the nineties. Sorry. And also says the only part of this interview that showed racism at all was his action toward his white teammates. This is usually what happens when you get these finger pointers. Look, man, I mean, 
This is above and beyond middle school hazing in the 90s. I was in a middle school locker room in the 90s. I was not it's, being forced to, to do a nude center quarterback exchange or going through a car wash where dudes' uh, sensitive pieces are flying all over the place and hitting me. Like This is, this is next level stuff. I'm not claiming that this hasn't happened anywhere else and that this is completely right. exclusive to Northwestern. But this is weird. If you can't acknowledge it's weird, and I, I would acknowledge like Ramon did that if my son were forced to participate in this, I would have issues with it Yeah. to this level. Like I understand some good-natured ribbing or you're having to do something for upperclassmen, right? Carrying their equipment, getting them meals, whatever it is. Like that's part of the process. Yeah. But this is not. This is silly. And all this stuff is silly. Yeah, I mean, the hazing, the getting tied to a goalpost and baby powder and all that stuff. I mean, that that was going on up until I, you know, four, maybe uh, five or ten years ago now across the league in every training camp of all 32 teams. Yeah. So it's it, it, there's a massive jump from the stories that we've all seen or have been told or have witnessed or have referenced to the allegations that turned into reports that turn into players that are validating stories. And then Ramon's coming forward and saying, yeah, I'll, I'll speak on it. Well, the stories of the, the racism, the racist climate, uh, the climate he talked about with the, uh, the Cinco de Mayo being shaved into his head. Um, there's another thing that he didn't get into, but that at some point, apparently his position coach said to him that I thought you'd be better at cleaning houses given who your parents are, you know, like, okay, that's really bad. Yeah. I also, I want to make it clear because this whole story centers around Pat Fitzgerald. He didn't reference Pat Fitzgerald's name one time. Pat Fitzgerald would have been on the defensive side of the ball, not the offensive side of the ball. His first year. You you asked a good question about, was this just the offensive line room or was it other rooms? He mentioned a player on the defensive side saying something to him. I've read multiple stories with his quotes in it. He does reference a story with a defensive back who complained about being forced to cut his hair and that white players with long hair were not forced to cut their hair and that he said something to him about it. So I do think it's pretty widespread, but I also think it's it, to be responsible, we should say there's not one story yet from him of uh, and Pat Fitzgerald was right there watching it as the head coach, or condoning it. Well, and that, that's been Pat Fitzgerald's defense, right? Is I didn't know and Northwestern this extent has admitted this is going they, on. They don't have that information. They don't have proof that he knew about it. And that's why he got a two-week suspension in the middle of the summer. Then they come back and say, no, you're fired. Which is, I, I, Northwestern perspective, again, I feel like they could have just gotten through this and taken the PR hit initially, and it would have eventually blown over. But now they fired him. And we knew, look, Ramon was going to come out and talk about this, whether he was fired or not, possibly, right? And it would have been a storyline for, for a bit, but I think they could have weathered the storm. Whether that's the right decision or the wrong decision, they could have weathered the storm. They clearly wanted to keep their coach. Clearly. Yeah. And now they fired him, and all these other allegations are coming, coming out. It's, it's a crazy situation. And now it turns into a legal battle. Yeah. Will. Over $41 million he's owed. Okay, it's, uh, he's two years into a 10-year contract. Cause. He got Northwestern, I'm talking about Pat Fitzgerald, to the Big Ten championship game in the COVID year 2020. He got a 10-year deal. 
based off of that, he's two years into that. He is owed $41 million on his contract. Uh, That's going to be a big-time legal fight. You agree with Trey earlier that the fact that the assistant coaches were retained and kept on board, that helps his case of yes. being fired without cause instead of with cause, which would he would be able to get paid that money? Yeah, I think it helps his cause. It also it's, diminishes the, le- the severity that Northwestern is acting like is going on with this case, right? Because you fire your coach. It, it, was, it reached the point of it's so bad, we got to fire our coach who's been here for 17 years and is a grad. But it's not bad enough that people that may have been a part of it or condoned it have to leave also. Because we have to have a football season, guys. We got, you know, we got to play football this year. We can't fire everyone. They got to stay here and, and coach football. What a weird purgatory year this is for Northwestern, and those coaches included. Those coaches know they're gone. Yes. This dude just left what North Dakota State to be the defensive coordinator at Northwestern, and now he's going to be the head coach. And all, he's auditioning not for Northwestern, for a job at you know or FCS maybe, level, or maybe. maybe he is if he wins three or four games. But, I mean, a staff that he doesn't know, that he came in and just got to know in January, like he's not been around them that long. Everyone on staff. Well, that's why they chose him, probably. There's basically a mutiny probably happening right now. They're Pat Fitzgerald guys that know they're going to get fired. That are under contract. Because they were under Pat Fitzgerald. But they're only there now because they got to have a football season. Yeah, I mean, and they've got to retain recruiting classes and anything else that they care about at at Northwestern for for the program. Uh the question is, how much do they care about the football program there? Because they had a guy that was not going to leave, right? He's yeah, he's a lifer. It's the nerds at Northwestern are love this story. Wildcat. They can um, they can get back to petitioning the that eight hundred I mean, million dollar stadium. Not we, we say they've got an interim that has no chance, but again, it comes down to I mean, it's a there's a zero expectation gig. Yeah, it's a great starting launching point for a young coordinator across the country to get that gig. And the same could be said about the defensive coordinator who's inheriting this this job opportunity. But still, it's it, the vast majority of the roster uh, reports are very upset about all this. With yeah, their coach well, being and they had that big fired. joint statement also defending uh, Pat Fitzgerald and the culture at Northwestern. Um, I, I, you know, some of the some of the stuff that he's talking about from the the racism standpoint. Um, doesn't really surprise me because it's very similar. I, I reference this to start the show to Iowa, to the strength yeah. coach at Iowa. It's a lot of the same stuff. Like, hey, cut your hair. You know, you're not in the hood anymore. Uh, we don't do things like that around here. That's not our culture. You know, kind of coded like, hey, be more like the white players, you know, type stuff. That That's the well, feeling that the – the, the, the black players on these teams get. By the way, I, I do want to reference this. Uh, Amado Villarreal was a kicker, and he was an honorable mention all Big Ten at Northwestern. He saw that who we were having on today. And Ramon. He, he, in Ramon. And he sent me a private uh, message on Twitter, and he just said, per your recent tweet, as a Latino walk-on kicker who played during the same time on the Northwestern football team as your upcoming guest, my experience was not the same. It was a very positive experience. I did not experience the purported racist and toxic culture that is being portrayed. Um, I have invited Amato to join the show to give his perspective. Now, important to note, Amato's a kicker, okay? Not an offensive lineman. I, the, the special teams room and the kickers probably weren't hazed at any point. 
So he's not in the offensive line room. And he's also not saying that Ramon is lying. He's just saying my experience as a Latino kicker was not like his, right? It was not a negative experience and he didn't see any of the, the racism. So then we dive into the big question, Hutton, of is this an offensive line coach right. problem, an offensive line Position room problem, only. or but like, could they have just saved a lot of this by going back and saying they had a culture problem on the offensive line? Or is it, you know, Pat Fitzgerald well, that should be fired? It's, there's a lot of layers to this. But the, think about it. From, it's not just the offensive lineman from the 2005 to 2008 era. You know, the, these reports, I mean, one of the anonymous former players was a player as recent as 2021-22. And yeah. the turnover with coaching staffs, and I mean, you would think based on what Ramon was saying, he's certainly been a part of this investigation, or certainly someone you want to talk to. Well, um, another question. If it's the offensive line coach, like, they yeah. wouldn't retain that guy. If we weren't forced into a break, another question we could have asked him was, were you contacted by right. the investigation? There were 50-plus people contacted, player and, and staffers, and that seems like a pretty important guy to talk to and with he, his story that he told us, right? Yes. If you're and, doing an investigation. And he said he was motivated, though, to come forward and, and put his face and name and voice to it based on the Daily Northwestern investigation yeah. with the anonymous players. But also, like, um, the jump from two weeks to fired with cause and the short amount of time which that took place. I know Shill, the, the president, well, he met with the board of directors or for the university, um, teacher, uh, faculty, By the way, players. Shill and the AD did go face-to-face with the players on Tuesday night. They we did? talked about that. You know, they did the Zoom thing, and all the players were upset and had the – a bunch of tweets came out about, you know, if you're going to do this, have the courage to at least let us ask questions. Yeah. Don't do a, 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 a written Zoom announcement and then hang up on the Zoom. They did go and meet with the players on campus, and they had a Q&A session after In response on, on to Tuesday night. That backlash? Well, they were on vacation. I think the president this was actually the... not there, and he was on Zoom, and then they came back okay. Tuesday night because of the backlash to meet with the team. And the AD was present as well. Chad, good news uh, from the All-Star game at Home Run Derby. Uh, the kid that took that 100-mile-per-hour baseball off, off his head, he was one of the guys, or one of the kids in the, the outfield when uh, you had Vladimir Guerrero Jr. just mashing. I mean, take a line drive off the, off the face, and by all accounts, TMZ gave an update, said he's fine, clean bill of health. It's a tough, I always think about that when That's, those little kids are out there running around because they're not – they're all focused on one fly ball and the, running after it together. And the hits are happening. And then they're, the hits are coming fast and furious. You better yes. keep your head on a swivel when you're out there in the outfield. He said left the bat at 115 miles per hour. What was the – Might make some kids think twice before signing up when they get uh, offered to go out there in the outfield. I don't know how it doesn't happen balls. Often, You know? I know. What was, the, uh, what was the mile per hour that you had to hit to reach a certain – According to Eduardo Perez, okay. it was 108. They said 108 is the exit velo to get to 440. I have no idea how you calculate that, but he was saying that that's where they need to be around. It was 104, 108, but to reach that bonus level of the long yeah. home run to and get this, there, they needed this, 108. This hit would have had that that velocity. <sighs> you know, I don't know how he didn't suffer. You're right, though. Injury. Uh, there, but for the grace of God, that this hasn't happened. More times with more kids in the outfield, especially with the the time limits. You know the clock. You're trying to get as many. Well, and the swings absolute as you can. just laser beams these guys are hitting too. Yes.
We're back at it tomorrow. Join Chad and Armando for Hot Mike with Hutton and Withrow right here on the Outkick Network, 3 o'clock Eastern.